You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. chapter 1, verses 15, through chapter 2, verses 17. If you want to take a moment to find it in your Bible, there are a few Bibles. Um, so once again, that's Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 15, through 2, 17. Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's Word. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. I am the rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me into the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, that you not stir up our awakened love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff. Let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cliff mountains. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And... Um, we are obviously going through the Song of Songs, which is a way of saying the greatest song. Um, some have called it the Song of Solomon, but it's really the Song of Songs. 
It is the greatest song, like the King of Kings is the greatest king. And um, I want to begin just by um, mentioning this article that I read um, from Vogue magazine. My wife let me know about it. She doesn't read Vogue magazine, but um, this particular article caught her attention and then my attention, and it was fairly disturbing to read, actually. Um, It's called, Is Monogamy Over?, And the subtitle is Inside of Love's Sharing Economy. And I had never even heard of this before. But um, it's about this thing called consensual non-monogamy, which is just a way of making it sound reputable. Uh, It's it's basically what we would have called uh, in my day uh, an open marriage or swinging um, or polyamory. And uh, in the article, it talks about uh, this couple named Megan and Marty Batia. Uh, They were 38-year-old college sweethearts, um, and one day they decided to bring uh, Kyle Henry into their marriage with them. And um, she said, in the article it says, she said it was like reigniting teenage curiosity. It was like the movie Pleasantville, where suddenly everything came into technicolor in our relationship. And reading more of the details just became more disturbing as you saw how prevalent this was becoming. Consensual non-monogamy. Um, 50, 56% of Americans in a survey said that uh, monogamy is not the ideal way of having a relationship. 56%. 23% already said that they were practicing non-monogamous relationships. 23% of Americans are practicing Uh, non-monogamous relationships. And that's why I want to look at the Song of Songs um, because I want to um, double down on this idea of biblical sexuality in this uh, empire of lust that we live in um, that's becoming increasingly clear uh, that we as uh, Jews and Christians, because this is a Jewish text, um, that we have a very unique story Uh, We have not realized how unique that story was for many, many centuries. But now we're starting to realize again, oh yeah, we live in in the Roman Empire, basically. We we live in a place with orgies. We live in Babylon. And our our story about sexuality is not the culture's story about sexuality. I mean, we've got to come to terms with that, um, that we're on a different page from the culture. And and I want to look at, in in this particular uh, portion of the Song of Songs, uh, two things about our particular view of sexuality and relationships. Um, first of all, is that the, the basis of it is friendship. And that's really, really different. That we believe that at the heart of a relationship is a friendship. It starts there. Um, he says in verse 15, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. And the word love is ra'ah, which is friend. And then she responds in verse 16 with, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, which is the word uh, da'ad, which means lover. So what I'm trying to say is that a relationship, a Jewish or Christian way of viewing a relationship is both your friends, absolutely friends first, but also then strangely and mysteriously lovers. And I remember the first time I I realized uh, that combination, it was very strange to me that somebody who would be my closest friend would also be someone that would have this, there's this romantic element to it, this chemistry. Um, and so that's, the, that's kind of the secret sauce of our view of a relationship. Uh, 
this combination of friendship and lover at the same time. So um, friendship first. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about the background of the Song of Songs. It was written for Solomon, who, if you've read the Bible, he liked romance. He liked romance a little bit too much. And this is written for his reign uh, back when he was monogamous. Um, And he um, he would have these banquets, and he would have one of his poets write a poem for him. He's like, write me a love song. And um, this was part of the uh, ancient Near Eastern context. Uh, they wrote a lot of love poetry back then. Uh, we didn't invent that in the 20th century. Uh, Egyptians wrote a lot of love poetry, we found. And even more important, the Canaanites, who the Israelites lived around, they wrote a ton of love poetry as well. But Solomon's love poetry is very different from the Canaanite or the Egyptian love poetry. Uh, the Canaanite love poetry was mostly about fertility, it was worship, it was ritual prostitution, it was mimicking uh, the god Baal and Annette copulating and producing fertility, producing babies, producing crops. That's the way Canaanites viewed sexuality, is almost a religious act that leads to uh, fecundity or you know, of offspring, something like that. And so they, they divinize sexuality uh, as part of their um, like eros, you know, like a god. Uh, and then in Egypt, it was more like just uh, these dalliances between uh, a man and his many lovers. So it was basically just uh, sexuality as uh, something fun, something to do with your woman. It was not consensual. Uh, consent was not a part of the, the deal. It was just a man having any woman they wanted. So Solomon says, I, I want my vision of sexuality to be different from those. I want whoever wrote this, and it could have been a woman because a lot of the Song of Songs is written from the perspective of a woman. A great deal of it is written through the eyes of a woman. And so uh, he says to whoever wrote this, and probably several people wrote this, uh, he says, I want a poem about Jewish, you know, Yahweh type of romance and sexuality. And here is the essence of what uh, both Christians and Jews share in their view, their very unique view of sexuality, is that uh, we believe that Sexuality is to be lived within this covenant that God describes in Genesis 2.24. And we uh, theologians sometimes call this the one flesh union idea, the one flesh union. Uh, So you see that in a lot of literature. Um, And here's the idea. It's very simple that uh, Moses says, uh, for this reason, uh, a person should leave their family of origin and uh, and then cleave to their, their wife. Uh, or their husband, and the two become one flesh. That is a, uh, a beautiful description of sex. Two becoming one, two very different things uniting as one. And then it says they will be naked and unashamed. So that, those are the four key elements of this uh, one flesh union. That is uh, this idea that Moses gave to planet Earth that the majority of cultures have not lived by. But you leave your family of origin and you become more important than that family. So that, that in itself is radical. The idea that this, your new family is more important than your old family. Uh, so you become a new family um, and you make a covenant forever. They, you cleave to one another. That's a very unique idea that, that uh, divorce is not what God's ideal was. That's not the way he saw things. That it would be a forever relationship. You would cleave to one another. And then the two would become one flesh. That, that sexuality was in the context of that incredibly safe bond. And then in doing that, it would relieve us of shame. Because we would both be naked and unclothed and completely wide open and unashamed. So that's the one flesh union. Uh, 
Paul talks about it in Ephesians 5. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. It's not a small matter. It's brought up again in Revelation. It's the whole arc of Scripture. One flesh union. And the Song of Songs is anticipating that. It's this boy and this girl. Uh, maybe they're, um, some people think it was like a, a shepherd and a shepherdess. They meet, you know, they meet, they fall in love. And the Song of Songs is this story of them beginning to know each other better and flirt and then moving towards the one flesh union, imagining the one flesh union, fantasizing about it, longing for it, um, but not getting there until the very end, not actually going there to the very end. And um, in this idea of a one flesh union, sex is the caboose at the end of the story. And friendship is the coal car that drives the train. If you know anything about trains, old trains, you would have a coal car where they would shovel out the coal and put it in the furnace and that would drive the steam, that would drive the pistons and make the train go. And the caboose was at the end of the train, and it was carried along by the coal car. And so the sex cannot be the coal car, it's got to be the caboose. And the friendship is the thing that drives the train. And that's how um, God created it in the beginning. In Genesis 2.18 he said, uh, the reason that I'm creating a, a male and a female is because I want to take away the loneliness. I want to take away the loneliness that humans would have otherwise. And so in Genesis 2.18... Uh, God says it is not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to make a, a rescuer for him. The word is not helper in, in Hebrew. It's rescuer. It's azer, uh, a word used 17 times for God rescuing Israel. I am going to make a rescuer that will take away the loneliness. And so then God brings all the animals before Adam. And while each animal comes by, God's like, is this the one that's going to rescue you from loneliness? And you know, the, the, the bear goes by and he names it a bear, but he's like, that's not, that creature will not rescue me from loneliness. Or a cat walks by or a dog walks by. And none of the creatures are enough to rescue Adam from loneliness. And so finally, God puts him in a deep sleep. He takes out from his side Eve. He makes Eve from his rib. He brings Eve to Adam, the first wedding ever. And Adam says, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's the first time any human being speaks in the Bible and it is, uh, it is poetry. It is written as a poem. He probably sang that when he saw her coming down the aisle towards him. Um, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's beautiful love poetry. And the Song of Songs is just like double clicking that. And then the whole poem pops up. It's like bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, uh, writ large. Um, it's like she's so much like me, but she's not like me. You know, she's... She's called uh, Isha. He is called Ish in Hebrew. I was talking about this with uh, Margie, with my wife, this, uh, this morning. And we were talking about this Vampire Weekend song that came to mind when I thought about uh, We Belong Together. Uh, if you know Vampire Weekend, um, they have very clever lyrics. And there's one song called We Go Together. And they say, it's a man and a woman singing back and forth. Uh, we go together like give and take, pains and aches, real and fake. We go together, don't be opaque. It's clear we go together. And then he says, we, we go together like Keats and Yeats. Those are two poets. Uh, bowls and plates, days and dates. We stay united like these old states, United States. It's how we go together. And the point of the whole song is these very different, these two very different people coming together and being united as one. Uh, that's how we go together. And so you have these two young lovers like Adam and Eve. They're talking, they're flirting, and they're abolishing loneliness by doing so. A great deal of the Song of Songs is talking. Um, there's a lot of talking. So in verse, in verse 15 he says, 
behold, you are beautiful. And then she says, no, you are beautiful, truly delightful. You can hear the flirtation as they say these things. She says, uh, I am a lily of the valleys in verse one. He says, no, you're a lily among brambles. And then she says, the voice of my beloved in 2.8. Behold, he comes and he says, arise, my love, my beautiful one, come away. And so it's almost like a screenplay, more than a story. And they're being so playful with the metaphors they use. They can't get enough of the metaphors. You're like a rose. You're like an apple tree. You're like a stag. You're like a lily. I I can imagine them laughing at their own similes as they say these things to each other. Can you imagine saying those things to someone that uh, you're like a rose or an apple tree or a stag or a lily? Uh, You don't just throw around that kind of imagery. Uh, That's very vulnerable. You know, you don't write that kind of note card to just anybody. You don't write that to a friend. You don't send that in a text or an email unless you feel really psychologically safe with someone. And that's how they feel. That's how they feel. Uh, She says in verse three, it is with great delight that I sat in his shadow, like he's shade in a hot day, providing shelter and safety. And they take away loneliness because they talk and they tell each other these things about one another that no one's ever told them before. Lovers tell each other things about the other that nobody else would be allowed to say. Nobody would be allowed to say. This, this, is what, this is what this friendship is like. They have this beautiful, exquisite, rare conversation with one another here where they're sharing their hearts. And um, the person that you want to be with, uh, the person you want to be with is the person you have the best conversations with. And I know that's not always the case. And if you're not there right now... Um, You know, there's a lot of grace for that, but that is the ideal that God created, that the person that you want to talk to the most is the person that you're going to be with. Because friendship is is the cake, you know, and the romance is the icing, but the the friendship is the conversations. And when uh, when Margie and I met each other, uh, we met in London at this big Victorian house in Hampstead called the Worrell House, and there's a staircase that's as tall as this building, at least, maybe taller, and it's it's hollow in the middle, so it goes all the way down. And we sat on those stairs and we talked. Um, and once we started to really talk, we talked most nights, long into the night, um, you know, past midnight, we would talk. And it started out as a lot of gossip about other people in the house, as is often the case. Uh, and then we moved to our childhood and we started talking about politics. I was a Democrat, she was a Republican. We were debating, um, you know, these different issues, the, the hot topics of the day. Um, and then we began to talk about religion. She was a Christian, I was an atheist, so there was a lot of sparks flew there. Um, our favorite music, uh, she liked um, Christian music, which I had never heard of before, and uh, I liked stuff uh, that she had never heard of before, and, uh, and we talked about our favorite movies and holiday traditions. It was just fascinating. I was so interested. We were so curious about one another, and that kind of friendship, um, it can actually transform the way you view yourself. You know, can actually change the way that you see yourself. Um, I, I love the way that she is healed by hearing his voice. Um, she says, uh, he says in verse 15, uh, chapter 1, You are beautiful, my love. And she responds in verse 1 of chapter 2, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, would she have said that about herself if he hadn't said that about her? I don't think so. I think she's looking at herself in the mirror that is him and seeing herself back is beautiful. 
So she's able to call herself a lily of the valleys because he has just said, you are beautiful, my love. And that, that self-perception of hers was radically altered from when she was little because she said back in verse 5 of chapter 1, I didn't read this, but um, and if you go back to, to chapter 1, verse 5, she says, don't gaze at me because I am dark and sunburned. There's a lot of shame about that part of herself. Um, but then because he tells her how lovely she is, then she says, I am very dark, but lovely. So he's gone to the very place that she feels the worst about herself. And that's where he said, you're beautiful. And this is what uh, romance should do. You know, the worst thing that, that lovers could do is to talk negatively about the appearance of the other. That is a horrific thing to do. Because you have opened yourself so much to the other person. Your, your vulnerability is so huge that if they were to, to take that and say something negative about you, it would be devastating. Instead, you can actually speak into that place of woundedness and fear and shame and heal the person as he does. And then I love the way that he is, he is like grown in his confidence about himself by the way that she desires him. So she says in verse 10, uh, my beloved said, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Arise, my love, my beautiful one. And come away. So her pursuit of him, her desire for him, makes, her, makes him then emboldened to declare his love for her. And he says in verse 13, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me. So because he senses that she wants him, uh, he therefore is bold to say he wants her. And it just strengthens his confidence. And this is what a friendship should do. This is, um, if you're in a relationship, um, then this ought to be there this friendship where you're building each other up, you're strengthening each other's confidence, you're not tearing each other down. Um, and if you're not in a relationship, that's what you should be looking for. Uh, that's such an important part of a relationship. I remember the first time that Margie took me on a date. Um, this was after I became a Christian, just to let you know. Uh, I became a Christian. Um, we went on our, our first date, really, and she took me and she planned the date. And by the way, in the Song of Songs, the woman is very forward. Uh, the, the whole thing begins with her saying, kiss me with the kisses of your, of your lips. So this is not like the 1950s thing where the woman has to wait until the man says something. And so um, anyway, she took me on this date and nobody had ever done that before. It was amazing. Uh, this, this woman who I idolized and I was in love with, this beautiful woman was actually pursuing me and it emboldened me. You know, she gave me cologne. She gave me cool water cologne. I don't even know if they make that anymore. Uh, she gave me a Christian mixtape. And I was like, Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant and Stephen Curtis, what are these songs? What is this music? This does not sound like my music. There's not enough anger and angst in this music. Um, she took me to the Olive Garden, got tiramisu, and then she took me to a Take Six concert, Christian band, um, and it just supercharged my confidence. It was like plugging me into a supercharger. That's what friendship can do in a romance. Um, Verse 15, behold, you are beautiful, my love, my friend. But that's not all it is. It's also this romantic aspect. Uh, verse 16, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, my lover. And uh, the difference is the exclusive nature of romance. So uh, in verse 16 of chapter 2, towards the very end, she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. My beloved is mine, and I am his. And that is not sinfully possessive. That's not uh, a kind of 
insecure, jealousy. Uh, this is good. There's a, there's a proper sense of ownership there if you're dating someone where if they go on a date with somebody else, you're mad about it. It's not okay. Um, this is where my children let me know there's this thing called talking. That wasn't a word used in our day. And you go from talking to dating. There's a lot more going on in talking than I would expect it to be in talking. But the way that they say you go from talking to dating is that uh, you, you can't go on a date with somebody else once you move to dating. You can when you're talking, but you can't when you're dating. And this guy takes her on a date that signals that move from one to the other. So um, in verse 11 of chapter 2, the winter is past, the flowers appear. This is her talking. The turtle doves are heard, the fig trees ripen, and the vines are in blossom. What a perfect time for love. Springtime is in the air, and this is the time for love. So he takes her on a date, and it's an exquisite setting in verse Four of chapter two, it's a banqueting house. Literally, that means the house of wine. So I wonder what they do in the house of wine. They're in a banqueting house, this beautiful place. And he has written a banner with her name over it. This was not a Sharpie, you know, on paper. This is something that he would have sewn and had her name uh, in some way engraved in, or maybe it was wood that was carved. But he has put her name in a banner in the banqueting house, the house of wine, and it's some kind of restaurant like, uh, like Ryan's. I've mentioned Ryan's before. I don't really go there that often, but I have mentioned Ryan's before. It's a beautiful restaurant. And one thing I love about Ryan's is you feel like you're in the trees. You feel like you're in a tree house. And this particular date that he's taking her on is embedded in nature. And so it says in verse 16 of chapter 1, our couch is green. Uh, I picture... Um, like Rivendell and the Lord of the Rings, you know, where everything's just kind of made of vines. Like there's a vine, there's some kind of like a, a sculpture made of like some kind of bush or branches of a vine. And it's like a couch. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters are made of pine. So they're in the setting. They're in the house of wine banner, her name's on it. And, um, she wants to be taken Rightly so. Chapter 2, verse 5, I am sick with love. That means she's fainting. It's just overwhelming to her, uh, the, the feelings she's having for him. And that's good. God is underlining that. He's saying, that's good. I like that. I made it that way. That's very appropriate. You shouldn't feel bad about that. There's no reason to feel shame about those feelings. They're very powerful feelings that God put inside of us. Um, and everything is pushing her towards one flesh union at that moment. There's no doubt about it. In fact, it says in verse 6 of chapter 2, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. So clearly, they're about to cross that line. I mean, they're right there. And right before she goes all the way, she stops. And that's very surprising. And this is what our culture... Whoa, yeah, that's true. Our, um, Our culture cannot figure out why Christians ever do this, you know? And it's not that everybody does do this. We all make mistakes. But um, she stops. And she says, uh, not only does she stop, she says to her friends in chapter 2, verse 7, I adjure you, friends, uh, not to stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There's appropriate time to have that experience where you're sick with love and the left hand is under the head, the right hand embraces you. There's a right time for that. And it's not now. 
It's not on this date. That's not the time. In fact, that statement is repeated three times in the Song of Songs. This is not a small thing. This is kind of close to the point of the book. <clears throat> is that sex is such an amazing thing. Uh, it, it's not that sex is dirty. It's, it's so sacred and priceless that it should be saved. In, in chapter 2, verse 7, 3, 5, 8, 4, three different verses. Chapter 2, 7. Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 4. In the most sensual poem in the Bible, it is absolutely celebrating sex. Three times, do not go too far too soon. Wait, there's a proper time. And not only that, uh, she is actually appealing to her friends in, 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 the, in the name of romance to do this. It's not that it's immoral here. and It's not that she's saying it's immoral. That's in other places in the Bible. But what she is saying is that I swear by all that is romantic, don't go there. Don't put that kind of pressure on your relationship. Um, don't put those kind of expectations on your relationship. Um, She's swearing by the, the gazelles and the does. And those are animals that were associated with, with uh, sexuality, with romance. And she is saying it will kill the romance and extinguish the mystery if you keep doing that. It's not healthy. It's not good. Um, and I've talked to people who've had that experience. And they've told me that. This is what killed our, rom- our, our romance. Our relationship was destroyed by that. We, we got too invested in the physical side. And what she is saying is she is saying don't commit your body to another person until you've committed your soul to another person. Don't let the physical intimacy outstrip the emotional vulnerability. That's what she's saying. Do not arouse or awaken love until it's time. And the comparison made is to little foxes that are chewing on vines. You know, in verse 15, when she says, catch the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, that just means that these little, she's comparing their love to a vineyard, a beautiful vineyard that's producing all this fruit, bearing amazing fruit that leads to wine, um, so like the greatest thing uh, that an Israelite could compare oneself to would be a vineyard. Our relationship is like a vineyard, but in that vineyard, these little foxes can come and they can like nibble at the vines and kill the vines. It's kind of like death by a thousand paper cuts that, that these foxes get in the way of romance. And so like conflicting expectations about what's going to happen that night, for instance, would be one of those foxes that can come in and destroy a relationship. If the physical becomes the center of it, that will start happening. Or the desperation uh, to know that the other is still physically attracted to you. And so you've got to do all these things to make sure the other person knows that you are physically attracted. And if something doesn't go the right way, you're wondering, okay, do they still like me or not? And there's no covenant. There's no safety there. So you're always wondering about that with one another. And then, of course, probably the worst of all is the guilt for making mistakes. And that is what really can absolutely weigh down a relationship. And the answer is, the solution is not to say, well, you shouldn't feel guilty then. Uh, that's not the solution. Um, there is a way to deal with the guilt, but that's not the solution. And I say all these things, okay? I say all these things as a person who's made so many sexual mistakes. So I'm not coming up here uh, and preaching from a, a point of view of holiness. Like, absolutely not. Every, everybody in this room has made mistakes. All, by, by definition, the human heart... Uh, is, is sinful. And in terms of sex, of course it's going to be sinful. That's why Mary Margaret prayed the way she prayed. Uh, but, you know, no matter, no matter how many sexual mistakes you've made or how much your marriage lacks intimacy or how bad you feel about a life without romance, which can be incredibly difficult and painful, the point of this whole book is that God is saying to you, uh, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, you are truly delightful. That's the point of the book. 
It's primarily God speaking to his people. Yahweh speaking to Israel about his love for her. That's the, that's the heart and soul of the, of the Song of Songs. Not just a human in love with another human, but God in love with humanity. And so if you're single or if you're divorced or you've been really betrayed by someone and love has not treated you well, you know, the Song of Songs is not a rom-com at all. Um, it is a love poem from God. And it is God glorying in the inherent majesty of his human creature. I mean, one thing I love about the Song of Songs is the extent to which God is interested in our physical bodies. And I'll just say, you know, from my past, uh, in our home, it was very difficult to talk about your physical body, especially any sexual element. That was like kind of off limits. You didn't talk about that in the Milner home. And yet God goes into incredible detail about his cheek, her cheeks and his hair and neck. Uh, we see that later on, but it's a little bit here too. His legs and her eyes and his voice. And he just goes on and on about his masterpiece. And he goes on and on about you. doesn't have to be a love poem. But it's very important that we love our physical bodies. And if you hate seeing yourself in a mirror, you, know, you need to tell your inner critic to go to hell. Because that's where they belong. That's coming from the enemy. That's coming from the evil one. Because God says to you in verse 14 of chapter 2, Let me see your face and hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So forget what the culture says. Forget what magazines say, what commercials say, what porn says. The Almighty says to everyone, single, married, divorced, your face is lovely. Your voice is sweet. I love you. I see you. I see the real you. You know, when I fell in love with Margie, um, I began to see her for who she really was. I was in awe of her, her face, her voice, her movement, the way she sang, the way she played tennis, her humor, like everything. And sometimes they say love will blind you to the faults of another person. But what I would say is that love actually opens your eyes to the majesty of the other person. For the first time ever... The lover is aware of the glory of the beloved in a way that very few, even the parents sometimes don't get. Uh, the, the lover sees the person and realizes what an amazing thing the image of God is. An image bearer. These bodies we have are gorgeous. Uh, in, the, in the article, the Vogue article, uh, Megan Batia, uh, she, the wife said, um, she said, one person cannot be everything for someone else. That was kind of her rationale. You know, one husband's not enough. Like one person cannot satisfy. And I thought there's a lot of truth in what she's saying there. Because if you think that uh, a husband and a wife or a boyfriend and a girlfriend can solve the basic problem of intimacy, uh, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. So there's true insight there. Um, But the solution is not to add another husband. Or another boyfriend, or another girlfriend, or another wife. That's not the solution. The solution is that there is a person who is enough, and it's God. And God says to us in James 4, 5, I yearn jealously over the spirit that I have made to dwell in you. I love that verse. In in James 4, 5, God says to us, I yearn jealously over the spirit that I have made to dwell in you. The most perfect, the most perfect, beautiful, the most majestic and awesome entity in the whole universe says to us, I think you're amazing. And 
It says in verse 8 of chapter 2, Behold, he comes leaping on the mountains, bounding on the hills. You know, if I was excited about Margie's day with me, imagine God leaping the mountains and bounding the hills to be with you. And in this table, we see a preview of the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is a wedding. It's a wedding. And so in this wedding um, that this table is a preview of, um, Paul says that, that a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife and the two becoming one flesh is a preview of Christ's love for the church. And that in this table right here, we are celebrating the, the final union one day of God and the human race as one, united in one flesh. And, um, you know, I don't like to say that we're going to have sex with God one day. <laughs> Doesn't sound right. But um, nevertheless, Paul says... Uh, that when God said a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they become one flesh, Paul says, I'm speaking about a great mystery. It's a mystery. But I am saying that that refers to Christ and the church on the last day. At the end of all things, when God comes to be with us, um, this will be a tiny, tiny foretaste of that great wedding. Remember, we love these rascals.